It is Friday, and we are working for Crusoe, Sam Park, and John Ramey with you. A very special year-end edition for 2023, and a look forward to 2024 on this Friday, December 22nd. Full disclosure, we're actually taping this on Monday, December 18th. Um, so hopefully nothing um, more important than the year we've already had will happen, because then we'll have to do this again. But that wouldn't be the worst thing in the world, Sam. I suppose not, no. Um, you and I both swapped an email where we were just listing kind of the most important stories we thought of the year in uh, international news and economic news. And you and I basically had the same five. And then you reminded me about the United Auto Workers strike, which was a huge story and a glaring omission on my part. So my top five was your top five plus the UAW. So your top six, I guess, what would we say was inclusive of my top five? Yes. Um, encompassing encompassing okay so the stories are inflation the united auto workers strike the war in ukraine the middle east specifically the hamas israel war uh chinese american relations and then africa there were a series of coups that were extended into the year 2023 extending a larger trend that's been going back since 2020 in the sahel region um and elsewhere and also yeah gabon for example um so let's Let's start with inflation. I looked up the inflation numbers. I went to usinflationcalculator.com, Sam. The internet's an amazing place. Uh, okay. These are uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics. Inflation from 2013 through November 2023. We don't have the December numbers yet, obviously. Right? In 21, the spike went from... 1.4% in 2020 to 7%. And then in 2022, it was 6.5% annual inflation rate. This year, it's back down to 3.1%. So I guess we can say the inflation story of 2023 has been the rather successful reduction of the rate of inflation by the Fed. Yes, I would have to agree with that. I mean, they would still like it to be a little lower, I think. But for example, I was watching Face the Nation over the weekend and Austin Goolsby was on and he runs the Chicago Fed. And he reminded us that, which is something we discussed in our first episode, I believe, about inflation, is that the Federal Reserve has a dual mandate. They're supposed to ensure, one, price stability, and two, full employment. And at the beginning of their regime of interest rate cuts, there was a reasonable worry that they might have to sacrifice some level of employment in order to restore price stability. I believe you mean interest rate hikes. Yes, I'm sorry. That's, that's what okay. I mean. Yes. Uh, and uh, it seems, knock on wood, that they have achieved this. Now, Goolsby was careful to point out that this is not over, that there's still some reduction in inflation that the Fed would like to achieve. I think he might have uh, been sensitive to some criticism that the Fed was spiking the ball prematurely and wanted to make sure that people knew that they didn't think the inflation story had actually ended. But prices are stabilizing And employment has held up. So in terms of the explicit dual mandate of the Federal Reserve, they're doing a very good, they're fulfilling both halves of their mandate. And so I think that they can feel reasonably confident 
uh, that they've achieved their mission successfully this year, at least. Looking at the month-by-month inflation numbers, one could forgive the Fed for spiking the ball too soon because inflation in January of this year was at 6.4%, and by June it was down to 3 Yes. From June, it has ticked back up a little bit, as high as 3.7, and now it's 3.1. So you're talking about 7% in 21, 6.5% in 22, and then here in 2023, they've gone from 6.4% down to 3, or now 3.1. So it really happened quickly, the first yes. half of 2023. That's right. Well, but you know, this is after uh, almost a year of interest rate hikes. So uh, it, it ha- in other words, it happened very slowly and then all at once, as the saying goes, right? They were hiking the rates for a while in order to try and moderate inflation. And we know that the actual inflation rate is often a lagging indicator of monetary policy. And so that's the way it worked out in this instance also. Any other thoughts about the inflation story in 2023? One that I'd like to try and go through very quickly. I remember about a year ago, many of my friends who lean even further left than I do were sharing headlines from left-leaning, very independent media outlets saying, inflation isn't real. It's all just corporate price gouging. And this, the first half of that statement was wrong, and the second half was right. And I think it can help us understand how inflation works. The Fed, well, John, there's a a phrase that we've heard all through this episode of what the outcome is that the Federal Reserve was trying to achieve. What was that phrase? What price stability and maximum soft landing? Oh, soft landing, of course. Yes, soft landing was soft landing, and which essentially means sorry to interrupt cool off the economy to the point where you get inflation under control, but you don't cause a recession or a big unemployment spike. Exactly. And now soft landing is a a metaphorical construction. So I don't especially like it just for that reason. The state that the Fed was trying to achieve is what we might call a disinflationary equilibrium. And it's not deflationary, mind you. That is, prices aren't falling. There is some inflation inside of the economy. In fact, you always want there to be some inflation. You always want demand to be outpacing supply just a little bit in order to keep the engine ticking over. But in the disinflationary equilibrium, which has been the steady state of the economy for almost 40 years, up until this recent bout of inflation, there are structural forces inside the economy that keep inflation in check. And as we've discussed, inflation begins to become a problem in any economy when inflationary expectations get built into the minds of consumers, because as we've discussed, it alters consumer behavior in such a way to extend the period of inflation. However, which we have not discussed, it also affects the behavior of suppliers, because suppliers begin to think very reasonably that if prices are rising broadly across the economy, then if we raise our prices, sure, people will notice, but they won't penalize us or think more poorly of us than they do of our competitors, because 
our products will just be one among a whole set of products, the prices of which are rising all across the economy. So inflation becomes a problem when consumer expectations of inflation rise, partly because of how it affects consumers, but it also acts as an incentive for bad actors. However, if the Fed is successful in restoring the economy to a disinflationary equilibrium, that begins to moderate almost instantly because inside of the disinflationary equilibrium, we know this very, very well. Companies will often try to compete with one another on price. Sometimes they'll do it by eating a little bit of their profit margin just to generate extra sales volume, or they'll try and make their production processes a bit more efficient to try and lower their wholesale costs of the products. And so nobody gets mad about that because they like it. So this is the flip side of price gouging. And and in other words, if inflation wasn't real, then the Fed shouldn't have been doing anything, right? If it was all just price gouging, then there's no reason for the Fed to even act at all. But inflation was real. There's no federal price police. Sure, there are regulatory agencies and uh, independent consumer advocacy groups that try and keep an eye on this sort of thing. And God bless them. It's great that they do that. But trying to keep, if the government was trying to keep an eye on every single price of every single item inside of the world's largest economy, especially one that depends on consumer spending, it would be much too big a job for them to do. The way to crack down on price gouging that results from inflation is to tame inflation right? Not to have some other consumer regulatory agency try and take care of it. It's the Fed's job, actually. Oh, you sound like a free market enthusiast, Sam. Well, I think it's it's (laughs) strange for me to have to fight this corner, honestly, right? right? But uh, hopefully we won't have to worry about inflation. We may not talk about inflation much at all next year. That's why we're doing it in in our year-end episode, because this could be one of the last times we speak about inflation for a while, in fact, we hope it will be. But if the inflation should rear back up, I hope people will keep stuff like this in mind. See, the United Auto Workers strike, which lasted from September 15th to October 30th, one month, two weeks and one day, nearly 50,000 workers struck across plants in Michigan, Ohio, Missouri, Kentucky and Tennessee. The big three automakers Chrysler, now Stellantis, Ford, and General Motors, all three experienced United Auto Workers strikes simultaneously, an unprecedented move and a successful one for the workers. Yes, this was the most successful labor action that I can remember in my life. And uh, I think it really hats off to the United Auto Workers. And again, we may not end up talking about this much in the coming year. Uh, and so uh, I just wanted to highlight it in terms of being, a, a, I think, not an overlooked story because the news definitely did cover it, but they didn't seem to really catch on to the significance of the story, I thought. And now the UAW is moving forward. They're trying to uh, unionize Volkswagen, for instance, is their their first target in terms of foreign automakers that 
as we know, are non-union automakers. And so they're trying to, they hope to unionize as many of them as they can. But Volkswagen is the first one they're going after. So if they're successful in doing that, then I suppose we might talk about it in the in the future as as that goes, or any other foreign automaker for that matter. They're also, however, uh, President Sean Fain has been talking with many other labor unions. And for instance, the big three contracts that were just signed, they all expire in April of 2028. And President Fain has been advising higher-ups in other labor unions to try and line up the expirations of their contracts at about the same time. If they can do so, he hopes to have a great day of generalized labor action on May 1st of 2028, which, and that is at which point, the presidential election will be coming up and the presidency will be wide open. Assuming that next year's presidential election is Trump versus Biden, neither of them will be eligible to serve an additional term starting in 2029. So Fain still seems to think he can play for a lot of marbles here. We'll see if that happens. I think Fain, who was uh, a celebrated character on this podcast throughout this story, certainly is the most ambitious um, and perhaps cunning labor voice of our lifetimes, and certainly um, maybe even in the post-war era. I don't know about the post-war I mean, maybe era. Maybe post-Hoffa. So, I mean, his his idol, as he's very clear about, is Walter Ruther, who was the sure. great post-war leader of the UAW. And Ruther was the leader of the UAW for a quarter century. So Bain's got some time, right? Uh, we'll see if he can... Uh, match Ruther, but Ruther is a legend in the American labor movement. So President Fain has some catching up to do. Uh, The other historic uh, element of this strike was on September 26th, 2023. President Biden joined the picket line at a General Motors warehouse in uh, Van Buren Township, Michigan, and spoke in support of the striking workers this made him the first sitting U.S. president to ever visit a picket line. Yes. Again, this is very important. And and again, the news media did cover that appearance, but it seemed to, to vanish almost as quickly as it happened. And uh, although, as I said at the time, I think we might end up seeing that appearance on video in campaign ads next year. I hope we will, actually. The Russian invasion of Ukraine began on February 24th, 2022. So this has been mostly year two of this war. Right now, the estimated civilian casualties, over 10,000 Ukrainians killed, 17,000 wounded. The estimated Ukrainian military casualty count, remember casualties are killed, wounded, and missing. So Ukrainian estimated military casualties, 100,000 to 120,000. Russian military casualties, 120,000 killed. The That is a United States estimate. NATO's estimate is a total of 300,000 casualties. So that's killed, wounded, and missing all combined. That's over the course of this war, which is nearly two years old. 
This is unlike anything we have seen since the Second World War, since the end of the in Second Europe. World War. In Europe, right? Um, it has this year of the war was defined, it, to my observation, by the anticipation of a great Ukrainian counteroffensive that ultimately has petered out, and not a lot of Russian occupied territory has been recaptured by the Ukrainians. And there is, according to some of the experts, a second stalemate that has emerged in this war. And it also made me realize just how challenging it is to understand a war, a military conflict in real time. You and I are both students of history. And when wars are over, the historians can tidily put together the sequence of events so that there's a narrative and you understand what happened, why things happened how it all fits together. I have no sense of this in the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Very little sense of of the of a narrative or a chronological or a who won that round, right? Like if it were a, a boxing match or something. It's it's difficult to really understand. So this year I would say it's the Ukrainian counteroffensive that didn't do much. That's right. And I think people who who tune in to working for Crusoe on a regular basis, have probably noticed that we don't get hung up on, you know, where the lines are in this particular, you know, Zaporizhia or Kramatorsk or where, where what have you. Her song. Uh, yeah, because uh, uh, we're trying to focus more on the geopolitical, but also just the day-to-day granular uh, elements of the war are just very difficult to keep track of and to make a lot of sense of on a macro level. One thing that we haven't talked about that we might is that is the Black Sea. And this is very important because I think it was in September when Vladimir Putin decided to pull out of the grain deal. And we have not, I don't think, since then talked about the ability of the Ukrainians to reestablish a maritime route to ship grain out through the Black Sea, hugging the sort of... uh northwestern shoreline of the Black Sea along the coasts of Romania and down to the Bosporus that way. Uh, now, they're not able to transport any anywhere near as much grain as they were before that, but they have managed to keep grain shipments going. And that's terrific for everybody. It's good for Ukraine and their economy. It's good for people all over the world that depend on their grain to feed themselves and for the price of grain generally. Also, uh, the Ukrainian attacks on the Crimean Peninsula uh, have forced the Russians to move quite a lot of their naval assets out of Crimea to the east uh, in what was always Russian territory even before the annexation of Crimea in 2014. And so that's actually uh, an important tactical uh, development that's happened in the war this year. It's not gotten a lot of attention, partly, I think, just because the Russians have been occupying Crimea Crimea for such a long time already, and uh, people tend to be more focused on the more land-based front lines in Donetsk and Luhansk, which I can understand, uh, because that's the territory that's been at issue 
since the war began. I should add, however, that Donetsk and Luhansk have essentially been under Russian control for that same amount of time, since 2014. So sure, the Russians control it today, but they actually sort of controlled it before the war even started. So it's difficult to see how Russia has much of anything to show for what they've accomplished so far since February of last year. Apart from 300,000 estimated casualties. Yes, which we might think of as a bad thing. When you talk about how hard it is to follow kind of granular and day-to-day stuff because it is difficult to contextualize that within the the macro kind of view of the war and the geopolitical consideration, that's the ultimate tragedy because that's where lives are being senselessly uh, ended. I could not agree more. That's the worst part is where it's actually life and death. It's hard to make any sense of it. And certainly the human story of military campaigns is a is a struggle for meaning of such sacrifice and that is the thing that troubles me i think the most about trying to make sense of this particular conflict yes and we'll have to keep careful track of this as next year dawns and progresses because it will tie in with a number of other stories we'll be covering then but we'll worry about that in future episodes So along with the Russian invasion of Ukraine entering the second year in 2023, there was really a leveling up of just belligerence. And part of that was the Hamas October 7th attack on Israel and the resulting war that is ongoing. We're also going to talk about unrest in the Sahel in Africa coming up a little later on on our list. But I think maybe we should have said at the outset, Sam, and I will say it now, 2023 became a very war heavy year in a way that was deeply unsettling for everybody who loves peace. That's everybody, really. And also just about everybody, just about everybody. And also made the world just generally a lot more dangerous. You have belligerent Russia. You've got a war with Hamas and Israel that I have to say is semi-miraculous. It hasn't expanded into a wider regional conflict. And I think Biden administration gets a lot of credit for making sure that hasn't happened. They should get that credit anyway. And and then also you throw in Chinese-American tensions, specifically over Taiwan, which maybe have backed down a little bit. And then the unrest in Africa. It's just been a a very war-heavy 2023. And I'm trying to think of another year in our lifetimes where there were so many disparate escalating conflicts in the world. It's difficult to think of one. I certainly can't. Uh, and again, it's refreshing that none of these things have gotten even worse than they might have. But we're going to have to keep an eye on it. I think one thing that uh, sort of helped out was the meeting between Xi Jinping and Joe Biden in uh near San Francisco. I guess it was just last month, yeah, it, it seems November. like longer. Yeah, it seems like longer ago than that. But that really seemed to at least put a little bit of a damper on what it seemed to be a pattern of only escalating tensions where things just seemed to be getting worse all the time. And as we discussed at the time of that meeting, uh the war in the Middle East 
really seemed to light a fire under the diplomatic personnel to make sure that meeting took place. And it seemed as though no small amount of effort was wasted in making that meeting seem like it went well, which I think it did. I'm not saying that uh, that was just a uh, theatric, but uh, there's some diplomatic effort that needs to be expended in order to result in the kind of sort of serene uh, affect of that entire encounter and very much to the good, I might add. I do want to talk a lot about Xi and Biden and the evolution of the uh, Chinese-American relations in 2023. Do you want to specifically touch on anything with regard to Hamas and Israel before we move on to that? I think we've covered that story fairly in depth and just how horrific it is in all directions and also how how merciful it is that it is not expanded into a larger regional conflagration. There's one thing that I'd like to touch on that you brought up I think two episodes ago, or perhaps it was last week, when we were discussing, I guess it was last week when we were discussing the settlements in the West Bank, uh, and you referred to them as colonialist. And I understand what you mean by that, and people have used that term to describe the settlements before. I think I said... I'm sorry to interrupt. Did, did I say I believe they were colonialist? You, I, you didn't say specifically that you believe them, but you did yeah. use the term and you didn't ascribe it to anyone else. Well, that's interesting because it is uh, sl- it. That's a hard one, right? Yes. And so I, I, it's worth, I think, zooming out on this a little bit while we're Please. doing our broad view year end wrap up. Uh, now, first of all, I would like to say that the. Settlements in the West Bank are illegal under international law. And apart from that, I believe they're an entirely indefensible land grab on the part of the Israeli settler movement. Colonialism has also been used to describe the broader Zionist project. And I understand what people mean by that. I don't think it's entirely accurate. That's and I would agree with that. And. For instance, when we think about colonialism in the, the centuries that followed the voyages of Columbus, the the very long period of European colonialism, sure, it's about sending people from your country to live somewhere else and by conquest, by the way. Uh but that we those people are colonists, but colonialism involves the extraction of resources, and not just a little bit, uh, but in enormous quantities. For example, uh, John, if we were to think of the nation of Great Britain, what would you say is their national beverage? Tea. That's right. Doesn't now, grow on, on the island. That's Britain. right. People like Henry VIII, Elizabeth I, William Shakespeare, these prob- these people probably never drank a cup of tea in their lives because they couldn't. And it's for that reason, actually, that tea should be the emblematic beverage of Great Britain because it's emblematic of imperial Britain, colonialist Britain, which, it, let's be fair, is 
in large part of how that nation defines itself. So if we look at Israel and Palestine, there's little to no resource extraction that goes on there. Sure, once in a while, I'll see tomatoes in the supermarket that are from Israel. But that's not colonialist-level resource extraction. Now, when I say things like this, it seems like I'm just making a semantic distinction. And to some degree, I suppose I am. However, when we, we're we talking about the coup in Gabon, for example. Gabon used to be a French colony, but now it's an independent country. They have their own government, which was overthrown by the military, but it's still the Gabonese government. They're technically, that is politically, an independent country. But as we discussed, their major export is oil, and their oil industry is dominated by Total, the French oil giant. And there are 80 to 100 French companies that operate inside the nation of Gabon, a country of two and a half million people. So even though Gabon is not a colony, the colonialist resource extraction is continuing apace. And if we look at Israel-Palestine, if any political settlement can be achieved there, which seems like an almost fruitless dream, but if it could be done, at least a future Palestinian state wouldn't have the conundrum of trying to extricate themselves from colonialist resource extraction. And that would redound quite a lot to their benefit. Of course, the flip side of that is they would be a very poor country. But at least they would have a chance to forge their own economic destiny. And that's the main reason why I don't think we should use the word colonialism, because using it shuts off or could shut off policy outcomes. I want to go so much deeper on that and settlements versus colonialism. Um, but it's a year in review, so we'll have to table that for 2024. Sure. Chinese-American relations, which started really with a bang in early February, 2nd of February, a Chinese reconnaissance balloon was spotted flying over the United States uh, airspace. On the 4th of February, that Chinese balloon was shot down, the resulting diplomatic fallout cleverly titled balloon gate really cast uh, a pall a chilling effect on uh, already what strained chinese u.s relations we can say and then in the middle of 2023 a series of increasingly high level meetings started to take place jake sullivan national security advisor met with wang yi then you had uh, gina raimondo the uh, secretary of commerce uh, meeting with her counterpart, um, Secretary of State Antony Blinken traveled to China. He met with Xi. All of this kind of crescendoed into the November uh, meeting uh, outside of San Francisco between President Biden and President Xi. And we speculated, Sam, that this was in part due to the fact that China's economy hit a speed bump or two, and they kind of had to play nice. Is that the big yes. story of, of the U.S.-Chinese relations of this year? That's a part of it. Uh, first of all, I would say that, that from the Chinese perspective, they feel like the the 
approximate cause of the deterioration in Sino-American relations was actually the visit paid to Taiwan by then Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi in 2022. That really seemed to get up their nose. And for reasons we'll discuss next year, certainly, uh, that uh, I can understand that. Let's put it that way. Balloon Gate, I think, was handled very badly by two different large groups of people. A, the Chinese, who... That is a large group of people. Yeah, no, but their their military and their government, I think that we're just embarrassed by it. This is based on nothing, by the way. But that just seems sloppy. Yeah, and and also the American media, who just made this out like it was the Cuban Missile Crisis or something for a balloon. Just the the stupidest thing I... Yeah, of all the stupid things the media does, this was really far up there for me. Uh, And between the Chinese government and the American media, it turned into this big deal that it never should have been and required this whole series of meetings to patch up this this ridiculous spat. Uh, But those meetings took place, and it seems as though uh, things are at least stabilized. The Chinese economy is, of course, a very big story. Uh, it That also seems to be stabilizing a little bit, but it's not over. Uh, and we'll have to see what other sorts of policy the government there implements in order to try and move the economy along in a more positive direction. Uh, that's a story yet to be told. We should also point out it's hard to really know about the Chinese economy. So we just yes. have kind of patchy data points that we can extrapolate what's going on. Exactly. And and uh, the data that they provide are notoriously unreliable. Uh, so it's difficult to, as you say, get a very detailed picture. And then finally, Africa. Um, you, again, have listed these stories in increasing relevance, as we predict for 2024, we talked a lot about Africa earlier in 2023, but we keep coming back to it. And you, Sam, have made the hypothesis that I'm increasingly ready to agree with that Africa is at the heart of the coming history of the remainder of the 21st century. We were speaking about Africa this year because of the uh, Sudan civil war and because and that was in April. And then we talked about the coup in Niger, which was the latest in a series of coups in the Sahel region, which runs east to west, the entire width of the continent just south of the uh, Saharan desert. And then later on in 2023, there was a coup in Gabon, which is not explicitly in the Sahel, but it is on the west coast, a little bit south of the Sahel. Quite a um, ways, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, different factors for the destabilization in Gabon as opposed to Niger. But overall, it's a confluence of factors that are so um, quintessentially 21st century, like the Sahel surpassing the Middle East and South Asia to become the global epicenter of jihadist violence. Uh, The Sahel in 2022 accounted for 43% of the 6,700 jihadist deaths worldwide that's up from just one percent in 2007 and then of course all over africa 
they um, there tends to be extreme weather and the consequences of that. Yes, so, and I would say not coincidentally, by the way, the Sahel is one of the most arid regions in the entire continent of Africa. And it also date, uh, circles back to the, the topic we were just talking about, about colonialism. The, Africa is entirely a post-colonial continent. And that's the thing that links the coup in Gabon with the instability in the Sahel is the post-colonial resentment. Post Sorry, post-French colonial specifically. Well, yes. Uh, but for instance, uh, in Sudan, right there, there was French involvement there, but it's mainly a former British colony. The point is that just about every African nation is the former colony of one or another European power. And even though the military people who are taking over these countries have no business, you know, saying that they're able to stand up for their own people, it's post-colonial resentment that helps them to do so. And if you think that's going to go away next year, boy, have I got news for you. All right, that'll do it for us. Happy New Year, everybody. Happy Holidays. Keep those cards and letters coming. John Ramey Media at gmail.com. He's Sam Park. I'm John Ramey. So long. Happy holidays, everybody.